Hey BBs, welcome to this week's episode of the Burn Black podcast. I am your host, as always, B. This week, I am interviewing my friend, Lauren Francis. Lauren Francis has started a new zine. It is called Constant Chaos. It is focused on dysfunctional families and harm reduction. Harm reduction is a set of principles that helps us not judge drug users, but meet them, meet, meeting them and where they're at and making sure they have access to things like Narcan and clean needles and making sure that their experience is as safe as possible. Um, this is something that's pretty important to both me and Lauren. Um, I'm really excited for her to produce this scene. I contributed to it and so you can read it soon. Um, in this episode, I want to trigger warn this. We do talk a lot about growing up a little too fast, um, her experience with her father being disabled, her mother um, having drug and alcohol problems, uh, and going to jail while Lauren was still very young. And uh, we talk about the comparisons between what happened to me very young and what happened to her, and just how where our stories sort of collide. And we get into ways that we learn to reparent ourselves, the things that we notice that we never learned in childhood that are just now occurring to us in our 30s. And Lauren talks a little bit about what it's like to be a parent um, and learning to parent when you didn't really have the best environment growing up. I love Lauren. Lauren is someone who, when I think of her, I cry. (laughs) I feel so lucky to have her in my life. A real true friend. Someone I trust uh, beyond a doubt probably the first person I would call in a crisis and isn't it nice to have a friend when you grow up with crisis all around you to have one friend that's kind of like you that can they can really withstand that and they like hold their power in crisis um it's surprising to me that Lauren and I both don't have our son in our eighth house because I feel like that son in eighth house shit uh Lauren is a uh she's a cancer with a Pisces moon. She's like a backwards Cobain. I love it. Gemini rising. We're so we're both Mercury dominant. Uh, we were just like made to be friends. I love her. And you can follow her online at, at honkies honk badonk. Um, I just wanted to pay mention that I have taken a break from social media just for the week so I can catch up on some work and work on some mental health stuff with myself. I just needed a little bit of a break. Uh, and constant contact is not always the best for me, so I'm taking a little break. I'll be up and running again next week. Don't worry, all my appointments are still going through. I'm still going to be working. I just need to take a little social media detox. So don't worry, Burn Black is still a thing. I've just kind of deactivated for a week so I can kind of focus on myself and regroup. There will be another podcast this week as well, so don't worry, you're still getting your content. And if you need me, you can email me. All right. Love y'all. Here's this week's episode. Yeah. Um, so I, by all accounts, had a very standard, normal, kind of lower middle class childhood. We had a little yellow house and a dog. We had a golden retriever, three kids, like very normal life. Um, until I was 10 and 
my dad got very sick. Uh, he was a victim of medical malpractice that ultimately ended with him spending 28 days in a coma and then oh my God. Mon months, like 10 months in a rehabilitation facility where no one kind of had any idea if he was ever going to be able to walk or talk or do anything ever again. Um, he is, I, he's still with us. He somehow survived all of that uh, just awful things that happened to him. And, uh, but he, he is fully disabled. He has, uh, severe epilepsy and myoclonic seizures, which are like, uh, basically where every muscle in your body spasms and you have no control over it. Uh, so mm -hmm. it, he, he can't talk. He can't, he has difficulty communicating. He, he's been in a nursing home since I was 13, um, because it's just, he requires 24 hour care and that's more than one person could ever provide for him. Um, what was that like for you having your father not be in the home anymore on top of, you know, all the physicality? Like, what was that? Do you think that that was the triggering point for you? Was that like the beginning of it or? Yeah, sort of. So my dad was like, if anyone's ever seen a picture of my dad or met my dad, I compare him to Ned Flanders. He <laughs> is like, he's six foot five. He has always had really dorky glasses and a mustache. <laughs> and he, anyone who knows him or knew him back then before everything happened with the accident, they describe him as just like a, a good guy, great person would do his back, just like, wholesomely good person, hard worker. Um, he always worked like two or three jobs to support my family. Um, and he, he like, he was ever present in my life. My dad and I were super close and still are close in a lot of ways, but it's complicated, you know, given the circumstances, yeah. but he coached every softball team, soccer team, basketball team. I hated sports, but he was always my coach. So I was required Aww. to be on the team. Um, yeah. we had, you know, we had our routines, we had our traditions on Saturday mornings. We would go to the, the Billy Murphy's is what was the, like the like gas station in town was called in my small hometown. Cause that's the guy who owned it was Billy Murphy. But anyways, we would go, he would get a cup of coffee. I would get a strawberry milk we would split a pack of the like little Debbie's donut sticks Aww. and we would drive around in his old 78 Chevy pickup and go to yard sales and look for garbage and like broken furniture <laughs> that people left out. And my dad would like adopt this abandoned furniture and fix it up and make it new again. And he was just like, he was my hero. I mean, he was everything yeah. I ever looked up to. And I was kind of close to my mom, but we never had a closeness like what I had with my dad. So yeah. it shattered my world when he, when he was not there anymore. And he, yeah. it, it was even more complicated to make sense of as a child because he was there. He, he wasn't gone. He didn't die. It wasn't, but he mourning wasn't a loss. Yeah. there. It was mourning a loss of the person he used to be, which is a really complicated thing for anyone to have to yeah. try and make sense of, but especially a child yeah. Um, and 
it was, yeah. I mean, I, I missed a lot of school and I remember I went to Catholic school and I remember my first day of my first class back at school, it was like first thing in the morning, I walked into class and one of my obnoxiously conservative, mean, like exactly what you picture a Catholic school religion teacher to be. She was mean, she was angry, she was spiteful and just evil. And the first thing she says to me when I walk into the classroom and sit down at my desk is, so Lauren, I heard your dad died in front of the entire class. And so it was just like, I had this complicated environment at home. I had this hostile environment at school. I was being bullied. I ended up getting pulled out of that school because I was being bullied so badly. Um, a, A girl, this is like traumatic to this 20 years later almost and uh this girl a boy thought I was pretty and and didn't and she liked this boy and he didn't like her but he thought I was pretty and your typical 12 year old drama bullshit um and in an argument in like a heated argument about it I was like I don't like him I you know I just want to I just want you to be my friend don't be mad at me she said, yeah, well, at least my dad can walk and talk. The fuck? Oh, my God. And, yeah. And that's, you know, that's your standard privileged, wealthy Catholic. I'm uh, so sorry. 12-year-old girls for you. But I had a person I- one time. Like, I mean, this. I think that, unfortunately, this is really common. And I hope that it's not anymore for the sake of, like, children now. But, like, I remember being very young and like a lot of people I also went through bullying and I remember a lot of people would always say well at least my mom's not dead and or like it's just such an easy target and it's like what the fuck like that doesn't that's like not even like like what (laughs) like it's such a it's such a it's such a weird diss like it's like how do you even respond to that and you and you can't I mean I was like, I went home and told my mom and my mom, I was just upset because I had lost a friend and because she said something really mean to me, like beyond the standard girl to girl bullying that was already happening. That was like, hands down, one of the meanest things anyone has ever said to me in my life. And it still hurts me because she's right. She's right. She has both of her parents. She has a normal life. She has a supportive family. She had all of these things that I didn't have. And it was such a weird thing to hold over someone's head. But, but yeah, um, that was like, my mom pulled me out of school the very next day and, uh, and put me in public school where I thrived. I still had, you know, some issues with bullying, but I didn't have that weird stigma because not everyone knew everything about my family and everything that had gone on. It was still kind of like, new and unknown to all of them yeah so I didn't have that you know that black cloud over me of like people not knowing how to treat you or respond to you or talk to you knowing that you've gone through something really traumatic like more or less the loss of a parent people like don't don't know how to handle it as a parent now of like a young child like how do you talk begin to talk about that with Will your son 
he's still very young, so he is not quite six. He'll be six on Christmas Eve. So he he doesn't quite understand a whole lot about my childhood or my relationship with my parents. Mm-hmm. It's kind of confusing to him um, because his his dad's parents are married. They're healthy by all accounts. They're together they spend a lot of time together as a family and they have a very normal situation and so that is this the example that has been set as far as grandparents go for him because he spends a lot of time with them but with my family it's not exactly like that you know we have to go and visit my dad at a nursing home which doesn't really make sense for a six-year-old why the why my dad lives in a what essentially looks like a hospital full of old people and why he's in a wheelchair and why he can't talk and things like that. So I try to explain it without giving too much detail about it, just explain it in a way that's easy for him to understand. But I know that someday he'll have a lot of those questions and hopefully when he is older and more emotionally mature, that is the appropriate time to start explaining some of the trauma and things that actually happen. It's so weird because I have almost an opposite experience from you but it's similar in certain ways where like growing up it was chaos like in my household like and and nothing was permanent and there was always a lot of change and uh but it was always kind of presented to me very honestly very directly like this is what's happening um this is what it is Um, like I remember going to see my grandmother really young, um, in a mental hospital and I was very aware at a young age what like schizophrenia was and mental health, having mental health issues were, nothing was hidden from me, you know, at all. And I understood it very young. I did notice that my sister does this with her child. Like they started going to funerals extremely young. She knew what death was extremely young, um, it wasn't something that they necessarily hid or avoided. It was just like treated like it's another part of life. Mental health, death, any of that was just treated very casually because that's what it is. And I wonder, I don't know, like sometimes I can I can navigate a certain level of chaos that a lot of my friends uh, would get overwhelmed with or think was too much. And for me, it's just tra-la-la another day. <laughs> and um, yeah. I wonder what, if that has something to do with it. Like I, I might be a person that's meant to be in a crisis because I'm going to be able to be the, like the calm person in the storm because it doesn't phase me. Right. But I also like kind of understand the idea of will not really getting it either but I also think that like there's something to be said for being honest with your child and explaining it because it takes away all of the negative and fear like when that's released very young does that make sense yes absolutely and and that's a complicated aspect of parenting a child with someone who hasn't really experienced a whole lot of trauma and who has a very normal, very cookie cutter, for lack of a better term, 
a very cookie cutter familial setup. Yeah. He he has parents who are still married. He has a sister. He has this family unit. And they, well, they've experienced loss and they've experienced hardship and they have been through things. Mm-hmm. The, the things that they have been through and experienced are far different than the completely life-altering, traumatizing, debilitating events that my family has gone through. Not to compare trauma yeah. to trauma because it's it's unfair to do that. It's just difficult for my son's father to understand my side of things because it's not his experience it's exactly it's not his experience and it's it's a challenge but it's something that we work on may I ask you just real quick I don't mean to interrupt you but like yeah okay I find that um and you and I have talked about this off of the podcast but I was in a relationship with a person for almost a decade and this might have been the biggest difference between us and there were ways in which my partner had trouble relating the compassion was always there but it to and and the empathy was always there but the relating is something that I realized in that relationship I actually require and that's so strange because also you want to protect yourself in that way from trauma bonding relationships so like it's like have you ever like have you ever taken a step back and realized like do you need to find yourself a partner that understands you more than necessarily they love you um because that's something i think i struggle with like i feel like in relationships it's so much more important for me to be understood than necessarily loved if that makes sense like love is quite easy but when you experience a certain type of trauma, even though I'm working on myself, um, I find it hard to relate in partnerships if the person can't understand the depth of my experience uh, on an internal level. Yes, I, yeah, I do struggle with that. Um, I need to... I guess while I don't feel I need one more than the other, I definitely need very healthy, equal helpings of both. I need, I need to be loved and I need that support and that empathy and that understanding. Mm -hmm. But I also need someone to maybe not have experienced the same things as me or experienced the situation to the same degree as I did. But they have a depth of you know, given, knowledge to understand it. But they it. have, right, they have some story or some background or some experience from their childhood that allows them to put themselves in my yes. shoes. Because while I don't, I don't need you to have been through the things that I went through, mm-hmm. I need you to put yourself in my place and realize why maybe I behave the way that I do in a certain situation because of all of these things that I have experienced and why that is not an excuse for my actions. If I'm behaving in a way that is inappropriate, but it will help them to totally understand me so that we can work on it together. And as a unit address those things and grow from them and learn from them. 
So yeah, I def- that's definitely how do you that avoid a trauma bond? Like, what is the fine line between having empathy in a similar situation with a partner and then a trauma bond? Like, how do you personally define that boundary? Really difficult question. Uh, I'm currently in a very healthy, very open, very understanding and loving and compassionate relationship. Mm -hmm. And honestly, what I've found is that with the right person Mm -hmm. who understands where you're at and where you've been and where you want to be. I don't necessarily need to define those boundaries yeah. because the the foundation on which our relationship is built has already established that yeah. healthy communication, constant support, the need for space when space is required on either side. Um, no codependency, just, being, just having a natural right, flow. Ha- having our own time, our own space, yeah. our own way to work through things. And when we want the other person present or when we need the other person present to work through something, having that availability and option for that, but not fully relying on it. Because I, I have struggled with that in the past where everyone in my life that I've ever loved and gotten close to has been taken from me in some way or another, whether it be death, whether it be addiction, whether it be, you know, a traumatic event that impaired their health, like in the case of my dad. Mm -hmm. So I form a strong, strong bond with someone and I will do literally anything to not lose that bond. Yeah. And that creates that really healthy, really unhealthy codependency of like, I cannot exist without this person (laughs) in my life. And that's something that I have had to work really hard to unlearn because I've, I've been told in the past that I can be very clingy and that I can develop feelings really quickly and really, uh, in, in a really unhealthy manner for people that I am into because I, I want so desperately for that companionship and a person of consistency in my life that I rush into it and I don't allow myself to let it grow and let it develop in a healthy way. That's something I'm also continuously working on. And it's hard for me too, because, um, I'm intuitive. So like, it's hard for me to separate what is intuition and what is, um, a trauma bond versus what is, you know, real (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. And like, one of the biggest things that I've personally learned with that is um, learning to understand yourself within your body and your reactions. Like intuition is, feels, when when you're in your body, intuition feels different than a trauma response. A trauma response is very guttural. It comes from your gut and it, it is quite physical. Whereas intuition is kind of a lighter, lingering effect. I, I mean, at least for me and how I experience it. Right. And uh, trauma responses feel very desperate. They feel very... and yes. Whereas intuition just knows. And, like, I've had experiences where I have met people and wanted to develop, like, a relationship with them. And, and some of it did come out as a trauma response because I was like going 
through certain things in my life or they might have triggered certain things. But like in the case of like certain people, there is also just like this all knowing type of thing. Like this person is in my life for a reason. Like even if they're not physically here, like like we have like a past life or we have some sort of lesson that we need to learn from one another or they they have some sort of general influence on the direction of my life and uh yeah and I think that that's also there's something to be said for that um and just remaining open to the nature and development of relationships I think a big thing for me that I've accepted this year and we've talked a little bit about this is I used to want, because my childhood was so chaotic, to have the white picket fence and, like, a kid, yeah. you know, like, just, like, kind of have, like, a normal, yeah. stable life. And then I sort of got that, and I realized it wasn't for me. Not that stability isn't for me, but it was, like, it it might just not have been the right person to be doing that with. And um, I started having all these internal feelings and that I was struggling with and desire and confusion. And um, what I've sort of come to realize is the healthiest approach for me is to release any idea of expectation for what a relationship should, in fact, look like. It, sh- it should yes. feel, it should feel in my body healthy and for me healthy means not a like I need I need 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 this person to be happy it's more like they just make things better and add more flow and with that being said I find myself really open to the idea of not everything has to have an end game and like there are relationships that I can have or friendships that I can have that have like their own ebb and flow. They have their own rules and you can define those rules based on the individual interaction rather than saying yeah. like, hey, uh, if you want to be my boyfriend, you have to do A, B and C and, <laughs> right. and like things have to go this way. Like, like I'm very open to the idea now of like, being poly I mean I'm like not gonna ever be a type of person that's dating like multiple people at once it's just like not who I am but I also like have this feeling now that like a lot of my jealousy that comes from the instability of my childhood and like not listening to my inner child like I don't want that anymore like that is a virus and I think that like by not taking away anyone's freedom to do or explore what they need to explore and just having like open communication. If that is something that I partake in with a person, like I'm much more open to that now. Uh, I mean, I'm also open to monogamy as well, but I just, I base everything on the vibe (laughs) rather than the desire. And I think that's a huge thing for me. Yeah, I think so. That's like you are coming from a very different place when you're responding to a healthy way that something makes you feel versus the feeling of need and the feeling of fear of living without, I guess. 
Um, I wanted to touch on two things that you said. You said the how you grew up in chaos, so you always des- desired that white picket <laughs> experience. Yeah. And I had I I really battled with that a lot. I still struggle and have kind of battle with myself from time to time about that because I had a glimpse of that as a very young child and it was taken (laughs) from me so I I always saw it as like something to just always be working back towards like someday I'm going to have this again and someday I'm going to have my own home and a place to live and a marriage and a child and someday I'm going to have and you're almost setting yourself up and you're setting yourself up for failure because I got all of those things I was finally at a point in my life where I had all of those things and it never it never made me feel at home. Yeah. It never made me feel like I had all of these things that I had always been missing out on because it was something that I rushed into with the wrong yeah. person and going through a separation and raising a child with someone that you're not in a relationship with is complicated, but it's made me see that, you know, home is not a, a place Home is not a house with four yeah. walls and, and and power and heat and food. Home, home is wherever you make it. And obviously you need those things to survive and sustain and be healthy. But home is how you make it feel wherever you are yeah. at. And I didn't ever realize that as a child, as a teenager, drifting through college with, you know, never having a really stable place to live I now at almost 30 have begun to realize that it's not the house it's not the image that is the important part it's how you make wherever you are existing however you make it feel for yourself and your family and I have a young child and he has a family situation that is more complicated than maybe some of his classmates where he has two separate homes and he has a parent that lives in another state from where he lives and it's complicated and it's confusing, but I would rather him exist and live with two happy, healthy, good homes with both of his parents than live in a house with both of his parents and be lacking on that home totally. feeling because it's an unstable environment and it's not healthy these people are not in love with each other and don't show compassion towards each other and it's just totally so the the image of the white picket fence is something that I mean I still struggle with it I had all these great things and I walked away from them at what cost but like I said I would rather my son love and affection know the feeling and and health right know the feeling of love and support and just constant, you know, overwhelming love, no matter where he is or who he's with, then have a house on a little street with a picket fence and a golden retriever, you know, all of these things. Um, And then another thing that I kind of wanted to touch on that you mentioned is the the expectations that we set for ourselves. Something that I've learned, it goes right along with that. I set the bar so high. And even when I 
was there, even when I achieved all of these things that I thought I wanted to achieve, it never fulfilled me in any way that I thought that it yeah. would. I, I still expectations felt... cause resentments. That's all they do. Yeah, ex- that's exactly what happens. And I, for a long time, I set expectations really, really high for my mom because she was my only parent that I had mm-hmm. through everything that happened with my dad. He, he wasn't around and it wasn't necessarily his choice, but it didn't change the fact that he still was not present in my life and he was not a supportive figure And in my for life. like the listeners who don't know, can we talk a little bit about what did happen with your mom and like where that went a yeah. little bit because I feel like that's very relevant to what's going on now with you yes absolutely so uh, my mom was still around amidst all of the chaos and everything happening with my dad um, she was working a full-time job as a special education teacher she was caring for my dad and having a nurse come during the day while she was at work to, you know, feed him and take him to the bathroom and care for him when she wasn't there. And then the second she got off work, she came home, took care of my dad, wiped his ass, fed him, put him to bed, put him in his wheelchair, did everything for him. Um, And eventually that took a toll on my mom. And we didn't have a whole lot of support from extended family. My dad's siblings were very resentful and not helpful in the situation. They wanted someone to blame for everything that happened, which obviously the blame is placed on the hospital and the healthcare providers that put my dad in the situation that he was put in. Um, But my mom had a very slow downward spiral. She had always struggled with addiction, but when everything happened with my dad, she was beginning to drink really heavily again. Um, she started using drugs and eventually became very dependent on a number of different substances. Uh, and everyone in our family and everyone, my brothers, we could all see that something was seriously wrong and mom was in a really bad way. And her addiction had just fully consumed her. It had robbed her of the person that she once was. Um, and she was driving my dad home from a doctor's appointment in Kansas city, which is about 40 minutes from my hometown, which is a small town in Kansas. And, uh, I was 14 and she was driving home from this doctor's appointment and she had been drinking and she had several different substances in her system. And she fell asleep at the wheel and crossed the center line and hit an oncoming car head on. Um, Do you know that's how my mom supposedly died? Have we ever talked about that? We, I knew it was a vehicle-related yeah. accident, but I didn't know any specific details. My dad said that he um, fell asleep at the wheel. We don't know if that to be true, but that's supposedly what happened. Yeah. So I never yeah. knew that. That's insane. The parallels I know. in life just continue. <laughs> so, just continue I, I feel, to identify I feel them. So karmically aligned with you and your spirit. You have been just on a side note, not to like not to like change the subject, but you have been one of yeah. uh, consistently 
my most kind friend, um, for anyone who's listening, I went through one of the hardest times in my life and Lauren endlessly surprised me in the first two years of this like really big growing transition. Like she thought about the little things that no one else thinks of. Like my first Hanukkah by myself, I was living with this guy named Yosef and he was terrible. And, uh, I, (laughs) and in my living situation was really unstable. I had just gone through a sexual assault. I, uh, was in a new city and Lauren sent me the most beautiful care package in the whole world. It said Chag Sameach in like, you actually, like, it looked like you cut out the letters. It was, (laughs) I did. And like put glitter on. It was amazing. (laughs) And like none of my other friends that I've known my entire life even thought to even give me a phone call and I just get this package and, and and through the years I've gotten a lot of packages from Lauren and I've paid him forward and sent packages to other friends yeah. and it really 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 helped me in my spirit and and I'm <laughs> like I want to cry I'm endlessly grateful for you in my life and I feel very you're going to make me cry too <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you are you are now what how you you're straight edge you're having your edge anniversary how long i i am so <laughs> i was 14 when my mom uh was in that accident and was driving drunk and uh a few months after that i became straight edge and so two days from now or october 17th edge day <laughs> marks 15 years that i've been straight edge Uh, which is just a crazy milestone and what a a lot people who know me know that I'm straight edge people who don't know my story and don't know my background don't necessarily know why so as someone who is straight edge I get a lot of that oh whenever you break (laughs) edge or you know whenever Lauren yeah whatever I get a lot of that because it's just people like to give you a hard time about it. Uh, but people don't understand the reasons behind why I became straight edge in the first place. I feel like if they knew they would maybe shut up about it, but it's also a weird thing that you don't disclose to people. It's not, it's really not. Um, but I, while I was going through all of this, I was mourning the loss of my, what was once my dad and adjusting to this life with a father who was sick and dealing with a parent who was struggling with addiction. Uh, I have two older brothers that were both grown and out of the house and just kind of doing their own thing. So they weren't really around and supportive and there for me. Uh, I was going through all of this alone and I was kind of living off and on with my grandparents who were disabled and unable to really care for me in any capacity aside from providing me a roof over my head, which I'm eternally grateful for. Uh, but I needed more than that. I needed more support than that. As a 14 year old, I was very rebellious Mm -hmm. and I was acting out for attention through all of this chaos. Uh, I was stealing prescription drugs from my grandparents and, um, drinking alone by myself and taking prescription drugs when I was 13 and 14 years old, which is like a thing that you expect, like, 
a 60 year old divorced <laughs> dad to do when he gets home from a long day at the office. But I was like, you were Drew Barrymore coming. <laughs> I was, I was coming home from cheerleading practice <laughs> and drinking a bottle of peppermint schnapps that I found in my grandpa's bar. Yeah. Like really un really unhealthy habits were forming. And I was way too young to be experiencing that kind of thing. And then everything that happened with my mom, that was on April Fool's Day, which is like the worst holiday yeah. for me <laughs> because my brother called me to tell me what had happened. Did you think my it brother, was a joke? Was, oh yeah, my God. I did. He told me, he said, Lauren, go to the hospital. Mom and dad are in the ER. They were in a bad car accident on the way home. And I was like, you're an asshole. Why would you joke about something like this? That's not funny. Like, I know it's April fool's day. Quit messing with me. Like, don't be such an asshole. Cause he's that type of person. Like he would absolutely try to pull that type of prank yeah. on someone. And so I just didn't believe him. And then he was like, no, seriously, you need to go to the hospital right now. Oh, God. And I remember walking in to an ER that was all too familiar to me being that it was the same ER that my dad was in not even three years previously that destroyed his entire yeah. life. And my dad was in one room on the bed on the table connected to all these machines. God, and, that's so horrifying. You know, breathing machines. And then on the other side of the hallway was my mom in the same scenario. Yeah. And they were both just like clinging on for dear yeah. life. And I remember seeing my father he was already gone, but I remember seeing him like they had a, him on a breathing machine at one point, And I guess they, but they didn't yeah. take out the tube from his mouth. So it was yeah. like seeing my father, like, it was so bizarre. It was, it was the weirdest thing. Like, yeah. why didn't they take out? I don't understand why they didn't take out the tube. So yeah. crazy. It's like not a thing you ever think you'll witness or experience, yeah. but, um, so that was on April Fool's Day. Uh, we, my mom was released on bail and was on bail until August. So then and you have this other dynamic to that too, which is crazy. Right. Right. So my mom absolutely just flew off the handle. She just went insane. And I don't blame her. I mean, her whole life fell apart after yeah. that. I, she was going to prison. She um, she knew that this was this impending thing that was yeah. happening. She had no self-worth, no value. She hated herself for what had happened. She hated the situation. She hated that she couldn't provide or support my brothers yeah. and I. And um, she went, we went to her sentencing in August and it was like the within the first couple weeks of August it was before school started um and I didn't understand how that works because I'd never been in a courtroom before and I didn't know I didn't know what what to expect or what that would look like I mean we we rode all together as a family with my mom to the courthouse and they you know, everything happened and I don't remember anything that was said during the entire trial because I was a complete mess and had no clue what was going on. Yeah. But uh, they read her her sentence and put her in wrist and ankle cuffs and 
I didn't see her for a year and a half. And I had no idea that that's what was going to happen. Um, but so my mom was sentenced and went to prison in August. And sometime between August and October, I kind of went on a little binge and I was continuing all my old habits and everything that I had learned from my mom on how to cope with all this tragedy that was happening. And at school one day in the lunchroom, I had a good friend that knew my mom and knew my family. And he was a fellow like punk metal kid and he was starting to show me music and we were getting into music together and starting to go to shows together and things mm. like that. When he and, found your uh, thing. He, he on edge day came to me at lunch and was like, Warren, it's edge day. <laughs> and I'm like, what is that? Like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, edge day. And I'm like, no, what is edge day? He's like, you know, like straight edge day. And I'm like, okay, straight edge. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, that minor threat song. I was like, okay, yeah. What about it? And he's like, it's this whole thing. And he like told me all about it. And I was like, holy shit. There are people who don't do drugs and smoke and drink alcohol. Like I seriously was so sheltered. I had no idea that people like that existed yeah. because every single person in my family drinks like it's their job. <laughs> they drink at lunch. They drink at dinner. They drink to celebrate. They drink when they're sad. They drink when they're happy. Like they're just, alcohol is such an ever present part of my family's culture and existence and always yeah. has been. Ooh, sorry. Always has been. I didn't know that there were people who didn't do those yeah. things. Like it never occurred to me. And so from that point on, I just like dove in head first and was like, this is yeah. it. This is it. This is the only thing I ever and punk rock saved in my life. life. <laughs> it, I, I sound like such a nerd. It's saying true. It, but, like, I, I feel like it's so funny. But yeah. Really? You, you, when you, yeah, when so, you feel like your world, right, is just always going to be this one thing. And then you find out another world exists, no matter what that is. Like, right. yeah, it opens your eyes to something you never even considered was a possibility yeah. for you. I, I honestly, by the time I became straight edge, I was 14, <laughs> you know, I was very, very young, but I had experienced way more than some adults have ever experienced or will ever yeah. experience. And I was learning ways to cope that most adults don't even do. And I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't become my mom. I saw my mom being taken away in handcuffs and I saw that as the future for myself. Yeah. And it didn't help that being in a small town where everybody's gossiping and everybody has these expectations of who you are and what you are going to yeah. do because of your family. Totally. Name. And my, my family name is kind of tinged with with that, not just with what might happen with my mom, kind of everyone in my family has a bit of a reputation Same. for <laughs> being, yeah, you know, less than ideal members of <laughs> a nice small town Catholic German society. Yeah. And how do you, how do you, so, okay, I'm going to stop right there because I do have a question about this. So I grew up in Delaware yeah. and, um, right. 
it's so weird because it's so like West Side Story almost <laughs> meets uh, Adam's Family Values <laughs> because because okay. it's like okay, there are three sides to the story of my family. <laughs> well, maybe four sides right. then because there's the truth. Um, so like, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, so then okay, so there's like my dad's side of the family, which is like. I don't know. Like, my dad was less than desirable. Every, like, like his family's all wonderful people. My dad, my dad's, like, the bad seed, right? But then, like, come to find right. out, like, this year, I mean, who knows, really? Because it, I think right. everyone is just in denial because people don't understand generational trauma. And, like, our yeah. generation. There's a lot yeah, of that. Yeah, our generation right now is... uh learning that you know and un- unlearning that rather mm-hmm. so it's like okay so with yeah. my dad there's like him he- he's sort of like the devil right and then there's like my mom sort of treated like the angel in from my mom's side of the family because she like died and she was victim to what they think was the devil which was my father right. so you have like these mm-hmm. two conflicting sides good versus evil type of thing but honestly when I looked at them and because I understood things very young, I, I just really thought that they were two sides of the same goddamn coin, right? Be- right. <laughs> and because everybody was so extreme and there was so much hatred and there was never like love and there was never at least if there was no love and I understood why there wasn't, there wasn't the common ground of wanting what's best for me. The best for me always required someone else leaving the picture, right? Um, it was never like, let's all get along. And I think that's why my wedding became such like a big deal for me and why the trauma of my breakup was so bad because it was going to be the only time in my entire life that my whole family could have been in one room and just supportive of me. And been there. Exactly. And, uh, and then there was the third side of the family, which was my stepmother's side of the family. And like, these were really good people like my grandfather was a rabbi he was one of the most prestigious rabbis to have ever lived our family like the family name has some meaning (laughs) but like come to my stepmother who was like the bad seed from the beginning and 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 I want to emphasize this I consider my stepmother's family my family I call them my aunt whatever but like my my aunt was one of the kindest most wonderful generous sweet compassionate people a person I have ever met in my life right and so like her family is wonderful she's just the bad seed but like because because no one saw that she was the bad seed because she came from the good family I became the bad seed (laughs) and so like growing up in a town where you feel like you're being constantly discussed projected upon like and it's always and it was always like Oh, and and it was like, there was one of two things that would happen to me frequently. Older women would always like treat me really well. And they'd be like that poor child, right? (laughs) The sympathy. Yeah. Yeah. And then they had sympathy, which was really nice. I had these like wonderful older women in my life that like played a huge influence on me um, and were kind, but still I was being a projection And then there were the other side of people who, like, gossiped and they knew the real deal and they knew the rumors. And they would tell me, like, you know, your stepmother was dating your father while your mother was still alive. 
and everyone in the town thinks that they did it together and made it look like an accident and like there was many that got like that went down with it and her ex-husband was the lawyer who signed on that and that shit's sketchy as fuck (laughs) and like it's just it like so these things were manifested upon me and projected upon me very young how great it is to find a world like you did straight edge and I did punk in general where none of that shit fucking matters anymore for a 14 year old girl like that is that is it yeah it it allowed me to create an identity for myself yeah and I I wasn't the daughter of a convicted felon I wasn't that girl whose dad almost died I wasn't gonna end up in prison like my worthless mom I wasn't gonna do all of these things that were just expected everyone expected me to fail they expected me to do something wrong and I was proving them right with how I was behaving yeah. you know I I made an attempt at my own life when I was 13 and I wanted to die I wanted to live in a way that would make me die because I had no, I didn't value my Same. own life, my own existence enough to want to continue mm-hmm. living. Finding straight edge, finding punk, finding a music scene that accepted me and didn't really give a shit if I had a fucked up family because everybody else in that room also had a fucked up family that they were trying to escape, that they were trying to find some sort of comfort and solace in their life and a place to escape to and that's what punk and metal and straight edge was for me was an escape and I made friends and I developed interests and I created my own identity separate from everything that everyone thought I was going to be and it was strange because while I you know had big stretched ears and wore like a lot of black t-shirts and you know a lot of eyeliner (laughs) I was still a straight-A student and I still worked really hard and I was still varsity tennis and I was still getting the lead role in the musical production and like I was still I I had this these interests and these identities that made me kind of the weird Mm -hmm. kid but I was still proving everyone wrong by continuing to be successful and also having my own identity and being my own person and not allowing all of these projections to define me. And like, I don't want to sound really cocky or conceited, but I think a lot of people then and now really envied that in me because so many people never left my hometown and so many people never never did anything for themselves to become their own people. They adopted what everyone else expected them to do. Mm-hmm. And that just became their identity. And I think a lot of people are jealous of that in me. And I, I don't, don't want to sound no, like you're I'm absolutely you know, talking right. myself it, up. I, and, but it, yeah. it's, it's something I worked really, really hard to do. And I earned it and I deserve it because I made it for yeah. myself. It wasn't anyone else's fault or doing but my own that I made these things happen for myself. Yeah. So what do you, yeah. do you think that like finding punk rock helped your inner child? Like, what do you think? Let's, let's talk a little bit. Cause we've been talking about inner child work. 
what it means, what to do to reparent yeah. yourself when you have all that. Do you think punk rock yeah. was pay- maybe like your first introduct- introduction to like reparenting yourself in the sense that it allowed you to redefine your values and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, it allowed me to kind of set my own, like I, I had so much exposure to so many different things mm-hmm. And it allowed me to kind of create my own sort of code of ethics and my own ideals and my own kind of game plan for how I wanted to live my life and how I wanted to move forward as I was becoming an adult. As even, I mean, I still go to punk shows and go to hardcore shows, so I'm still involved and I'm still living mm-hmm. it. But it, it kind of created this groundwork for myself. And it, it really... I don't want to say that it defined me, but it helped me to define myself on my own terms. And I was raised in a Catholic church. So I was raised with a lot of tradition and a lot of things that you just do because that's what you just do. And I wasn't, you know, finding something like punk and something like straight edge allowed me to be like, no, I'm not going to just do it because you say that I'm supposed to do it. I'm going to do the things that I feel are right. And that I, that feel what I want to do and I don't know it's complicated because I was raised in a Catholic church where I have some Catholic family members that are very by Mm -hmm. the book and that are very strict Catholics who are like mass every (laughs) Sunday and every holiday and they I have you know cousins that have be have entered into the priesthood and it's my brother's orthodox whatever and like I have so I have goodness I didn't know that many like my well my stepbrother not my my uh, my brother brother okay Um, my other brother my brother brother is a pagan (laughs) but (laughs) I got a little I got a spice jar my my niece practices hoodoo (laughs) um so so we we got a lot of things going on I have an aunt that's a Jew for Jesus (laughs) oh what do they call what do they call those? Like Jews a, for Jesus? Is no? Is that what? A reconstruction? Isn't there like a I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's something I don't know. like that. I just know that like everybody re- is always re- like, "Oh, she's a Jew for Jesus." We don't listen to her. Is that what they call it? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's very judgmental. I don't know. And like, meanwhile, I have pentagrams yeah. all over my apartment, <laughs> and right, and exactly. play with tarot cards for a living. So right. And and it's crazy because, you know, my, my, so my parents were both raised very Catholic. They both went to Catholic school and, you know, went through all of the motions and whatever. My dad is still very religious, but my brothers and I are all atheists and like very open atheists, like just not about it. Yeah. You know, like we're totally cool with acknowledging the fact that like this is just not for us. And it's cool that we all ended up that way because we do have like some common ground Cause there's a lot of things that I can't relate to my siblings yeah. on, but finding those little bits of common ground has been really helpful as an adult and like kind of making sense of all of the things we went through. Cause their experiences were so much different than mine because I was so much younger than they are. So, you know, their day-to-day lives weren't as affected yeah. as heavily by everything in a way that like, I had to figure out how I'm going to get a ride to school because the bus doesn't pick me up or I have to figure out where my next meal is going to come from because there's no one here to feed me and there's no food. Yeah. God, these, they these, didn't... 
get these, that. These are, these are my childhood memories as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they didn't experience yeah. that because they had figured it out and they got out and they were doing their own thing and good for them. I'm glad that they were able to exist apart from it. But I, as a young child, didn't have yeah. that choice. I was talking to my recently and this, I thought, okay, so I've been all this like interesting family, like genetic stuff, like, like how we mm-hmm. intellectualize things and then like within our bodies. So this is very interesting to me. So uh, I started realizing when, when my ex and I broke up and I was spending a lot of time with myself, I was realizing mm-hmm. that like, there's a lot of things that I do differently than other people that like, I have like, people always comment that I don't do things the right way all the time because I just have, Ugh, I get yeah. a lot of that. <laughs> I think when you're, when you're a child that has to raise themselves, that is common. You yeah, you it figure out. it out. <laughs> you make do. Anyway, yeah. so long story short, um, I was talking, I was talking to a friend, and I was like, I realized that I don't know how to tie my shoelaces like everyone else can. With the I do, I still do the two bunny loop, and um, right. I was talking, and I was like, I was talking to my friend. And I was like, Do you think that this is because, like, my mom died when I was three, and like there was no one to teach me how to do it differently after? at that point so I just did what I knew and I never tried to think about learning anything differently than what I knew and then I started looking a lot of things like the way I hold a pencil is very juvenile I never I don't hold my pencil like other people Um, and then when I went to go meet my sister who's 23 years older than me uh, she does everything because she was the oldest like properly and comments on everything and is like super, super big Virgo energy in that sense, you know? And, and she like, she's like, you don't put lids on anything. (laughs) Like she was like totally in big sister mode. I was sloppy little sister. Right. And like, it was annoying her. And, 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 and I talked to my brother about it and my brother was like, yeah, I do the, I only do one bunny loop as well or or the two bunny loops as well. I can't do the one bunny loop. And I was like, David, it's because Mm -hmm. our parents weren't fucking around like we and then we start both started talking and saying like all the things that we noticed about ourselves and then it made me sort of look at my reactions as well and I'm like if I am like this physically with my pencil or I still suck my thumb or all these other things that I do like I need to reevaluate all of my coping mechanisms as well and like re- parent myself so I did this like weird intellectual thing and this is before I read any books on attachment theory or any of this where I was like I'm running my life like a fucking AA program going forward (laughs) and I was like I'm not going into meetings or anything like that right now (laughs) like I didn't have any issues with like alcohol but what I meant was like I feel like I want to reestablish positive patterns in my life and so some of that meant yeah, you wanted a structure. Yeah. yeah. And so like I kind of started naturally reorganizing my life and I would journal everything and I would start like kind of asking myself why I had the reactions that I did. And then a lot of trauma happened when I was in Oakland and it really brought all those demons to the surface. So when I moved back home, yeah. I really re- reevaluated all of those things, and I feel like I've become such a different person over the last few years. And it's all because I feel like I'm learning how to reparent myself, learning to ask why. I think a big thing is always asking okay. myself why <laughs> and kind of getting to the root of things. 
Like, why is this bothering me? Instead of getting mad, like if you're angry with a with a person or you're arguing with a person, it's like instead of just circling in your head you know what I mean and just being like why is this bringing up this trigger for me and like asking myself those questions and really trying to get to the bottom of like what my inner child needs like um like and and it's so simple it's like going back and like literally telling yourself your inner child so to speak (laughs) like like what were what needs were not being met that allowed me to develop this coping mechanism because that's what it is and how can I reaffirm those needs or insecurities to myself because I am 36 years old and and these these things don't serve me anymore and so like I have been going back and doing that I'm curious how that's worked out for you both like as an individual as an adult and then like also the dichotomy of actually doing that while you're parenting yourself yeah so it's crazy because I have only recently started to notice things like that that I do differently than Mm -hmm. other people that people have like maybe always acknowledged about me and I just never thought Mm -hmm. anything of it but like two things that really stand out to me is uh, people have always made comments about how I drive. And when I was, from the time I was 16, and I think I I better knock on wood because I really don't want to have a car accident. You're very cautious. From the time I was 16 to the time I was Mm 22-ish, I had like 15 car accidents. Mm. And I was just like, everyone just expected that if they got a phone call from me, it was going to be because I was in the, I I rear-ended someone or I hit a parked car or I backed into a wall. But like everyone always gave me so much shit for it. They're like, Lauren's such a bad driver. She is a crazy driver or she's a too cautious of a driver. She, you know, is an anxious driver, whatever, whatever analysis they had of my driving skills, everyone's got, you know, their opinion, but no one ever taught me how to drive. My dad was in a wheelchair, my mom was in prison, and I was living with my grandparents who didn't even own a vehicle. (laughs) So I had to learn how to drive myself. So if I do something weird, or if I drive a certain way, or if I have a bunch of car accidents, it's because I had to figure this shit out for myself. It's not because I'm like just a total space case and don't know how to drive a car. It's like, I had, I, I put myself in driver's ed and the first time when you sign up for driver's ed, you're supposed to have had like 20 hours of supervised driving time with a parent. Yeah. And my grandma just like forged it on the paper because she's like, you have to learn how to drive and nobody can teach you. So go to driver's ed and figure yeah. it out. So I got in the car in driver's ed and I was like, okay, what do I do? Yeah. And he was like, you've never driven a car before. I was like, I've never, I've never been behind the wheel of a car before. I had the same <laughs> experience and I don't, and to this day I don't drive. Like I don't know how to drive. I have like so much anxiety in cars because of what happened. Yeah. And I did, I did for a really long time and like living when I was at living in mm-hmm. Chicago, I yeah. hated driving and I hated parking and I hated having to drive anywhere. And I was always anxious. I was always on edge and I had several car accidents while I was there because I was just always so freaked out by mm-hmm. it. Um, but another thing that I noticed that I do that I didn't even really recognize until like the last couple of months is 
being food insecure as a child and having that instability of not knowing when I'm going to eat or where I'm going to eat or am I just going to eat lunch at school or can I walk to my cousin's house and eat at their house tonight and just like weird stuff like that as an adult when I have money or like when I get paid, I just go and buy a bunch of groceries. Like even if it's not something specific that I'm going to be cooking for a certain meal I'm making, or if I am like planning my meals for the week, I like just having food in my cupboards. And, And my partner was like, you always go and buy groceries, but then you'll just have like the same two boxes of Annie's mac and cheese (laughs) and like a box of minute rice and like some canned goods in your cupboard but like why do you always buy stuff that you're not planning on eating and I was it's just just like a thing that you I'm I do that too it's like I just have it I just feel better having something there if I end up needing it which I I really don't ever get to a point where I'm so broke that I don't know how I'm going to be able to afford my next meal. I can usually figure it out, but that like, it's the poverty mindset thing. Yeah. It's like, I just, my grandmother was like that. My grandmother, because she lived through the great depression, like the house. Yeah. yeah, It was like, she was a hoarder. Like she hoarded toilet paper. She She hoarded canned goods. Like, and, and, and it sucks because now I am, like, so broke. Like, so broke that I cannot afford to feed myself. Right. So, like, the minute, anytime I do right. a reading and someone sends me money, I immediately, that's the first thing I do is get groceries. Yeah, groceries. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I can eat. And that's, that's how I existed for so long. And, you know, I'm going through a separation now and it's financially draining. So that's kind of been the case for me off and on over the last you know year and a half or so I have been in that boat but it's just like I never want to wonder where my food is going to come from because that's such an uneasy survival feeling that I never want to experience ever again and I never even noticed that I did it until my partner said something about it to me and I was like why why (laughs) do I do this and it like it all started to make sense um but kind of going back to like having to reparent yourself and kind of unlearn and then relearn new healthy ways of doing things and ways of approaching things and living your life and processing emotions. It's kind of like a constant, it's just a constant work in progress of things that I'm learning that work and that don't work. But with my son, the, the biggest thing for me, and I don't remember where I heard this or who, if somebody said it to me or if I read it somewhere, but the, the, the quote or the philosophy was that the way that you talk to your child becomes their inner voice mm-hmm. as an adult. So the way that you talk to your, your child or, you know, your, my son in particular, the way that he hears from his parents is going to become how he talks to himself as an adult. So for me, something that's been really difficult for me has always been self-worth because my, my existence was never prioritized to anyone, especially the adults who should have been prioritizing my well-being. So 
I am constantly having to, you know, I'm, my brain wants to tell myself you are not worthy. You're not lovable. You're not good enough. No one cares about you. You are unimportant. You are insignificant. The people in your life are going to leave you. And these are all things that I have to stop in their tracks because my brain still goes to that really dark place sometimes. And so I have to totally not let that, that not necessarily that my mom or my dad told me those things as a child directly, but through their behaviors and through the actions of all the adults in my life, that's what I came to understood about my, to understand about myself. So I'm always very conscious of the way that I talk to my son, but also the way that my behaviors are talking to my son. So I never want him to question his worth or his value in my life. I never want him to doubt his own self-worth. I don't ever want him to blame himself for anything that happens in his life that is the result of a situation or of adult problems. Um, and he's, he's been in therapy since his dad and I separated. And it has been tremendously helpful for him to be able to communicate his emotions. Like he's almost six years old and can tell you how he's That's feeling. Amazing. He can say, I, I, I feel really sad today or, you know, I don't want to do this today. It's too much for me. Or, or he'll say like, it's a lot for me. And that's how, you know, yeah. for a six year old or almost six year old to be able to communicate those things and to have supportive adults all around him that mm -hmm. see that and hear that and meet him where he is and don't expect more from him than what should be expected of yeah. a six year old to deal with. And you're transforming chromosomes just, right there. That's exactly what you're... Yeah, it, it really truly is because those types of attachments and that type of support is something that I yeah. didn't experience. And it completely, like you said, it changed <laughs> the entire inner workings of how my brain yeah. functions. And that is, that's been something that I've, I've been in therapy for years trying to... And by Undo. doing that, you're changing so those and the potential and, and then exactly. Will's children exactly. and you can change an entire family line. Exactly. It's amazing. Exactly. And, and that's, yeah. And that's something that I've been, and it relates back to being straight edge. I, I have said for so long and I have stuck by it and it's so motivating and empowering for me, but the cycle ends with me. So we're talking reparenting. Um, my therapist gave me this exercise when we first started seeing each other. Um, I love my therapist. And she she basically, it's a really simple exercise, but um, it, it, it has helped me. I have, since I don't, I don't do it as much anymore. Now it's just become like a natural reaction, but she, mm -hmm. times a day and I would have to take three minutes for myself during that time that the reminder went off and I would have to do breath work and then re like try to re-establish my sense of self within my body 
um, sometimes when I'm working, you get so in the zone, you like forget what your needs are. And so it's kind of retraining you to parent yourself and ask you what you're needing in that moment. So I don't work for eight hours straight and not get myself a glass of water when I need it or to eat and things like that. And because I was never, I never had that when I was growing up. Um, now I notice that I also like skip meals and I don't take care of my body. And then I wonder, like, then I get mad <laughs> and then I get angry cause I haven't eaten anything and I'm not taking care of myself and we get into these like cycles of things. And so setting three reminders on my phone every day started a, um, giving my time, giving myself time to get back into my body and not be in any sort of disassociated state. It also asked me to become my parent and ask myself, okay, what are my needs in this moment? How am I feeling physically? How am I feeling mentally? What do I need to do to return back to the other state? And then also just a general reminder to be like mindful of the things around me and to not get in this very locked state of just getting things done and using all of my energy. So I'm so depleted, I don't have anything else to give anyone else. So it's like asking me to redefine my boundaries with myself as well. Yeah. And it's just like such a simple thing that you can do that you don't think about. And like how many of us get into like workaholic mode because of it, which is a very real thing. How many yeah. of us um, become very self-involved with whatever like if we're dating somebody and there's some sort of problem that pops up and you just get into that like obsessive loop of thinking like what I did what 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 I could have done better like and you could go a whole day without like you know t touching base with yourself because you're you're in a depression cycle so like one simple reparenting thing is set some reminders on your phone give yourself three minutes throughout the day to just touch base with yourself you know yeah um has your therapist or have you found any other reparenting exercises that you would like to share yeah uh one thing that has really helped me in the last few months uh i didn't disclose it in my story my mom passed away back in july uh so having this strained relationship with someone and then mourning their loss when you never really made sense of necessarily everything that you experienced together or experienced because of them. Uh, something that has helped me has been writing and being able to find a creative outlet in a way that kind of serves double duty because I'm allotting myself time away from work, away from responsibilities, away from the stress of day-to-day -day life to do something creative with myself and spend time with myself and prioritize my own, my own creativity and my own writing and my own feelings. Uh, and then writing about exactly the, the thing that has been the source for so much stress and turmoil and internal, uh, just internal battle that I've always had with myself over the things that I experienced with my mom. So being able to write about those and step back and read and 
look at things after the fact and reflect in a creative way has been really important for me. Uh, and I'm really thankful that I sat and wrote down my story with my mom and wrote down how I felt then, how I feel now, how I've come to understand things, how there are things that I still don't understand has been huge for me in being able to ask those why questions like we talked about, being able to question everything that you're doing and why you do it that way, why you react that way, why you feel that emotion in a certain scenario. I'm slowly coming to understand a lot of things that I never even tried to make sense of. So that's something that I would urge people to do. And maybe it doesn't have to be writing. Maybe if you prefer to you know, make music or maybe if you prefer to paint or draw or make art or whatever the case is, find a creative way to address really important, really meaningful, really deep feelings you're having and prioritizing a time to allow yourself to do that away from the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's super good. Like, are, do you want to talk about the zine that you're doing? Do you want to promote that or are you ready to promote it? Yeah. So I'm hoping that it'll be out sometime in the beginning of November. Mm -hmm. Uh, I created a zine. So I took my punk rock roots and something that I've always wanted to do in making a zine. I've contributed to numerous other zines that friends have made, like Burn Black. Um, a, a handful of others, but I've always wanted to make my own. And so the first thing that I did was write a really long piece about my relationship with my mom. I told our story. I told it from my perspective, uh, kind of as a letter to her in trying to understand her and why things happened the way that they did and why she was feeling a certain way at a certain point in our, in our journey. Uh, but I've also found that in making a zine and having other people contribute their stories and their, maybe their poetry or something like that, I've really come to understand other people that I've known that I never knew in that deeply personal way because they never divulged any of their details of family relationships Mm -hmm. because the, the zine is fully focused on dysfunctional families and complex. the the complexities of having relationships with your family, because regardless of whether or not your parents are still involved in your life or you see them every day and talk to them all the time, those relationships can be complicated and everybody struggles with that in one capacity or another. Um, So it's, it's been therapeutic for me to write about it, but it's also been really a really cool way to connect with people that I maybe wouldn't have otherwise connected with. And that's just, I'm the only person who's read this zine. So if I can create something tangible and share it with other people and share my story and these other stories with more people, that's only more people that are going to feel that connection and feel understood and feel like they can relate to something or someone that has told their story. Yeah. That's why zines are so great. Like it's the most pure thing. Yeah. No one editing it. Yeah. And no one's and telling have, you you can't say exactly, something. Exactly. You write it on your terms and mm-hmm. the way you want. And you share it with a community that you want to share it with. Mm-hmm. And 
so it's called constant chaos because that has been the <laughs> theme of my entire life and it's how I have always existed everything is always constant chaos everything that can go wrong in my life generally does go wrong and <laughs> I mean take that as you will that's just how I've learned to exist uh, but when people would ask me you know you know how's life or how's your family or how are things going it's always constant chaos is my default response. So it seemed fitting to call the zine that. Um, <laughs> like I said, it should be finished by the beginning of November. I'll have it available to purchase online. Or if I run into you in person, I'm happy to run, you know, share it with you if I run into you or cross paths with you in some way. But I will have a way that people find if they so choose and I'll mail a copy to them. Um, you contribute to it, so you will have a piece in there. I have a piece, there's some poetry, there's some artwork, there's some photography. Uh, and I think it'll be really, it's a very vulnerable thing for me to disclose these type of details about myself. Yeah. But it's absolutely essential in being able to move past it. Yeah, absolutely. The bravery it has taken, and it still makes me sick to my stomach to think about people knowing certain things about me that they maybe don't know. Uh, but it's really empowering and I'm really excited for it. So you should never be afraid of someone judging you for what you've been through. That's not your fault. First of all, I know, I know. <laughs> and that's something that I have always struggled with. What will people think of me when they know the things I've been through? And it's, it's not my fault, me, the things I've been through. Uh, if anything, I should be proud and people should look at me in a very admirable way that I turned out the way that I did and was able to overcome the things that I did. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's difficult for me. To, I assume that people will judge me because of my story. They're not. I mean, but if they are, that's they're fucking why, assholes. Yeah, that's <laughs> why I'm doing this. And so hopefully my story and my story with my mom will help other people. Uh, if it creates connections to where people feel comfortable to reach out to me. Yeah. And, and need someone that they can relate to that is maybe currently experiencing similar situations or has something in the past that they've never dealt with and they finally feel that they have someone that might understand that door is open. I'm unfortunately an empath, so I have <laughs> no choice but to, to just really feel with people. And I love hearing other people's stories and yeah. in helping other people work through things, it helps me too. And so there, no, no, no bad can come from wanting to relate and wanting to share and wanting to be open and, tell these things to people so I'm very yes. excited about it very excited I'm excited for you Lauren you are my kindest bravest most straight edge friend that I've ever had <laughs> the and... most, that's such an honor <laughs> the most straight edge friend you have in that's fact great. okay I want to close out this episode all right I want you to like think for 30 seconds but I want you to close out this episode with the most straight edge lyrics. And I want you to recite it as if it's poetry. Oh my God. <laughs> that you relate. Off the top okay. of my head. No, 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 no. I want to know what 14 year old inner child Lauren 
wanted to hear. So I want you to speak from the inner child. Not today, Lauren, but I want you to use, pick, pick the, any, any song of your choosing. Okay. I'm going to give you a few seconds to think about it. But if you could talk to 14-year-old Lauren in Kansas and you could have a conversation with her, but you can only potentially use it as a vocalism. <laughs> I want I want you to speak to that inner child and 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 here is your exercise for the week. I want you to write it on a fucking post-it <laughs> and I want you to keep it on your dashboard for whenever you get frustrated over the next month. And I want you to text me every time you laugh at how stupid it is. <laughs> Because it's just, gonna, it's, it's just going to make you feel good when you're in traffic and you're mad and you're frustrated. And then you're going to look over and you're going to see this cheesy 14-year-old line. And not only is it going to make your inner child mortified and embarrassed and also good at the same time, which right. we, we all love. <laughs> but it'll, it'll break the silence of that moment being frustrated. <laughs> so, yeah. all right. I've given you a minute. Do you have an answer? <laughs> Of the most straight-edge song I can think of. I don't... I mean, it doesn't have to be a most straight-edge song. Okay. What would you say to your 14-year-old? I really need some time to think on that one. Okay. To come up with something. Because, like, honestly, the the first song that comes to mind Go is... Go with that. Straight-edge by Minor Threat <laughs> because it was the... So, quick sidebar, <laughs> I know we're, we've been talking forever... I had a crush on this boy named Darren who had a blue mohawk and he made me a mix CD and he put the song straight edge by minor threat on this mix (laughs) CD. And I don't think he had any clue what straight edge was. And I think he just like stole it from his big brother's music and thought it was cool and was trying to impress me. But But he had a blue mohawk. He had a blue mohawk (laughs) and a skateboard and like a wallet chain. I'm loving this. (laughs) <laughs> and he gave me this mix CD with a bunch of other just like very standard cookie cutter punk. And then this one song. And I just remember listening to it on my little red discman outside of school and being like, what is this? <laughs> and it just like shook my world. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like such a cheesy, dorky standard answer but that was the first song about straight edge I ever heard and I didn't even know what straight edge was until like a year later when somebody told me what it was it was just a song that was really passionate and angry and full of you know ideals and I just never heard anything like that before so like it rocked my world for sure amazing okay so pick a line from that song what would you say to 14 year old Lauren Oh man! I mean, I guess if I had to narrow it down, what is your favorite line? Even... If if this was an Instagram video and you can only oh, pick those two, yeah, lines. a few lines. Yes. Okay. Really, the easiest. It's so easy. I'm a person just like you, but I've got better things to do. And it's so stupid because when I was 18, that was one of my first tattoos that I got was those lyrics. But they've always stuck with me. There and you it's go. Like, it's been my identity. This is it. This is it. It's what I needed then. It's what I need now. I don't foresee myself ever not needing it in my okay, life. Okay, Scott Vogel. Yeah, I'm a person I just... <laughs> yeah, right? Everybody fucking stage dive now. <laughs> Wherever you are, 
whatever you're doing, stop what you're doing and jump off of something or punch something. But do it safely. And safely, yes. Because the last time I punched something while listening to a straight edge <laughs> band, I broke my hand. So I currently have a broken hand because of that. So punch safely. Punch safely. And stage dive safely. <laughs> That's my words of wisdom for the day. I love this. Bye, Lauren. <laughs> Bye. And now for the self-care tip of the week. Hi, my name is Haley Reyna. You could follow my rope account on Instagram at Haley underscore does underscore rope. I'm here for the self-care tip of the week. I started my um, kink exploration about a year now. Um, I started doing kink more because after a breakup, I decided to do everything he told me I couldn't do. So I did it as an act of self-love and self-care to start doing things that I wanted to do. So kink was one of them. So my self-care tip of the week is um, self-practice kink. So these are like self-ties and rope putting nipple clamps or clothespins on your body or self wax play. So doing these things as a self care is reminding yourself that you are your own top, even if you are a bottom. And also it shows the strength that you have to do things on your own without having to deal with anyone else. Doing these things could help empower you in your own strength and also reminds you how much of a bad bitch you truly are. So go out, um, take some kink classes, either row, breath play, needle play if you're into that, and support your local kink community, sex workers, your local witches, and of course, your local fat shunts. Thank you. Burn Black.